This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Okay, so um, I guess we'll start off where we left off yesterday. And I think it's, it's important because so much of Hungary has to do with things that are relevant today in terms of Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, non-religious, semi-religious, and, and understanding that it, it really was a stage for a lot of things that happen now. Someone asked me something now, Mr. Mensch asked me now something which was, it's relevant today also, and I think it's important to understand the dynamics of it. So the 1700s was an age where um, people began the, an age of reason, rejection of uh, authority, church authority, um, consolidation of governments in the way we understand it today and therefore and a lot of ambivalence about church power Jewish rabbinical power and things of that nature so you have two things happening at the same time the government wants more and more a sense of control of the communities and at least they want integration you have the people beginning to start sort of thinking on their own and dealing with things on their own. And in Hungary, you have a very um, unknowledgeable uh, laity who just, whatever rabbis tell them, and so on and so forth. From the end of the 18th century, from the end of the 1700s till the beginning of the 1800s, in Germany, you begin to have uh, a, uh, a temple changes in, in some, some small changes, some radical changes in the, in the different, um, in the shuls, and there's a sort of a creeping reformation happening. This is going on and on, and then you have, in the 1840s, you have a, in 1844, you have a conference in Germany, a series of conferences called, Bahnschweig was one of the more famous ones, where reform rabbis got together and decided what to chuck out. There were a lot of suggestions, ranging from Brismila, Shabbos to Sunday, um, tossing out mentions of Yerushalayim and Tchias HaMesim. Everything was up for grabs. The Orthodox community in Hungary was very slow to respond. Now, um, the person, the historian that I feel most comfortable with in terms of his material, is somebody called Rabbi Kassil Yehuda Greenwald. Grunwald, Greenwald, he was born sort of 1880, died about 1950, he was a rabbi in Columbus, Ohio, eventually for many years. Very Haredi person, he, he was a, but he was a very traveled person. He was in the army, in the Hungarian army. He used to go around town to town, checking you know, registries, um, uh, 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 gravestones, communal records. He had that type of personality when interested him. He, he wrote dozens and dozens of different works on different kufis in Hungary and some earlier. It's footnoted, sourced material, and so, so it's, it's, it's really, it, it has historical basis. He gives his own take on certain things and you know, you can, you can do as you wish, but of all the people I've seen that speaks about these things, he really was, um, seemed to be very balanced based on facts. And he has criticisms on everybody, so which I guess makes him either impartial or very partial. <laughs> I'm not sure if, that, if that's a, 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 a Milo Hisarim, but he, he is like that. 
So the, the, the rabbis were really slow in recognizing it. They basically felt what it needs is a conference of rabbis. They had a conference in 1844. They talked a lot. They, 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 they yelled at each other. They stormed in and out of the conference. They left with a whole bunch of... Um, they left with a bunch of, uh, I guess, psakim at the end of the conference that from now on we decide who should be Rabbanim and, we'll, and, and everybody needs to ask us their questions and so on and so forth. It, it basically was a conference that accomplished nothing. By all records, it accomplished nothing. Um, and it, it really was, was too little, too late, and so on. The, um, the really big step came... The government, in those days, you couldn't just organize um, a religion. You know, in America, for instance, which is the, the extreme example, if you want to organize the religion of moon gazers, so all it requires is just incorporating papers, and, and you're the moon gazer society, and it doesn't bother anybody. In Europe, governments were, were, were wary of having all sorts of societies. You had so many things going on. You couldn't just have everybody open up a shtibel. The government needed to deal with, an, with the community. It was it, it, in terms of what was allowed to do, could you make a shul? You could not make a shul as a recognized religion. Um, in different places, it was relevant as to could you make an own school system? Could, could, would the lobbying to the government? The government wanted to have a united Jewish communal representation to deal with. And in 1860s, late 1860s, the government of of of, uh, of uh, Austria, Hungary, or which was really Austria, was the seat of it. Franz Josef had the Jewish community meet. The reform, the neologs, outvoted the Orthodox to start with. That that's how the groups were set up. There was a lot of storming, and I, at the beginning, they tried to organize the communal structure, not to deal with religion. In other words, it's a communal organization that deals with everything but religion. But there were too many, for instance, schooling. What does it mean you make schools? Who decides who teaches, what they teach, and so on? So the Orthodox insisted on six words. Everything that's decided must meet the criteria of Shulchan Aruch. And the, the neologs refused. The Orthodox stormed out, and the organization that represented the jury to the Austro-Hungarian government was non-religious, and that was the Jewish communal. They petitioned to Franz Josef. Franz Josef was the Austrian emperor. He also was considered, in Jewish lore, he's a friend of the Jews. He was a positive person, and after two years of hassling him and lobbying, he agreed to have the Orthodox community recognized as a separate community. And thus was born the Orthodox community. Now, bear in mind, Reb Shamshofal Hirsch tried to do the same in Germany, and his own community did not go along with him when he was living, and he, would, and he died pretty heartbroken that his own Orthodox community would not support the Austrian, the, the, the leaving of the general communities. There were a lot of reasons for it, because it meant you had to have your own graveyards, you wouldn't be buried with, the, with, with parents and grandparents. There were a lot of practical implications of it. So by 1870, it was 1872, Franz Josef um, allowed the formation of the Orthodox Jewish community, which was 
the recognized as representing Orthodox Jewry, and it was considered a nace, a Purim nace. That is 1872, and it's a landmark moment. However, um, Jews are, you know, two Jews, three opinions, and this is where it becomes um, important understanding each of these groups, the three groups that Ellie spoke about yesterday, were a lot more complex. The neologs, which is sort of compared to reform, is probably a lot more comparable to what we call conservative jury in America. They, they did not want to change things too radically. They were okay with the general picture, just the stuff that's bothersome smooth out a bit. So, so, so the, neolog, the neolog community was more like conservative community. They did not go for the extreme reform Germans type of thing. Like I said before, it was not an intellectual movement. It was a movement based more on just kind of to be with it, easy, pleasant, and so on. And some of those were actually um, people who were orthodox in practice, but just felt that it's important to keep the youth the way conservative. There were some orthodox rabbis who were conservative rabbis, and they felt, they, they, they justified it on the fact that, listen, you have to be realistic. So the neologs themselves were from people that were kind of half assimilated to people that sort of were traditional and even very traditional. The status quo we spoke about is interesting. Status quo people who joined neither of these two groups and they set a plague on both houses will manage without formal why. So the, the most surprising group of people who did not go along with the orthodox were the extreme Hasidim. The Hasidim did not partake in that Orthodox group. The Orthodox founded a, a rabbinate. They had an office in, 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 uh, in Budapest. They actually had a real structure. They had a bureaucracy. They had you know, a, a, a chief executive. It, it really functioned like a rabbinate. The Hasidim did not join big time. And, and, and there was a lot of harsh feelings, like you, you people in time of need didn't come in. Why did the Hasidim not join? First of all, they mistrusted any organization, and they still do. In other words, Babov does not belong to Agudas Yisrael, and Ger is the only one that does, because what do you mean you're going to have a superstructure above our Rebbe. Our Rebbe is no one is telling us what to do. So they did not like that. Two, they did not like structure. They, they're just, you know, if you have a people, you know that. It, it's, it, they, they did not like the idea that I want to do something in my shtetl and somebody in Budapest tells me what to do. Um, they, they, you know, they also mistrusted the same way like in Aguda, because the minute you become a, 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 an official body, you have to meet people, Goyim, um, representatives, government, you have to act with a little more restraint, you have to be a little more um, political, you have to be able to compromise in time of need. They were not capable of doing that. And therefore, where there was Bunkach, where there was Satma, they wanted to have no part of it. This is very similar to something like in Eretz Yisrael today. Besides that Gouda, the reason why the right wing, in other words, the, the, the Eid Achredis, does not join 
apply like a good, besides disagreeing vehemently on some core issues, they are not willing to subjugate themselves to a group of Rabbanim. The Eirach Reides is only a conscious organization. They will not set policy. And, and uh, at Satmet best sees the Eirach Reides as a vassal of theirs, not, not as, as them being a subgroup of it. And that weakened it tremendously. That was one reason. A second reason, and well, we'll see... What was weakened? The Orthodox. Because a big chunk, these Hasidim, did not belong to that Orthodox group. Two, the... the um, what? The they were sort of the some sofas, children of the. It, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. The leader of that group was namely the Ksav Sofa, some sofa's son. The Maram Shik was I, the biggest Talmud of some sofa. They were the leaders of that group, and they had actually some very capable people, couple Reich and Frankel. They had some very capable people running office. And I, I give an example of a situation, it's a little bit of a rough example, but I heard this from someone who was there personally. I had a neighbor of mine in, in Arzabira, my next door neighbor, grew up in Hungary. His grandfather was one of the greatest rabbinim in Hungary. And his, he, he himself learned by Satmarov. He got smich of Satmarov, and then he became a, a Zionist. And, and he headed one of the, one of the units in the, in the war in Jerusalem. So, he's a Shmuzman, I like a very smart man, very astute person. And he told me that when Franz Josef passed away, Rabbi Friedman, the Likute Mariach, very harsh Rav, said a hesped about him. He was not keen on saying a hesped. He was a big Hanoi, this Friedman, and, and it wasn't, but he had to. So he said, you know, Franz Josef was a guy, he was king, they say he was good for the Jews, now he pagan. I hope everything will keep getting a bit good. The word pagert, for those who are not familiar, it's a very crude Jewish word, meaning akin to dropping dead. It got out into the news, in the press, there was, they were, were going to lynch people. And the head of the, of, of the Orthodox rabbinate had to do damage control like crazy. And finally, when they were able to explain, they didn't translate right, they misheard, they, they didn't have in those days videos or tweets, or, so they could able, finally, he, he then called him in and he said, you know, it's a it's a it's a nace that we're able to get things under control. You've got to be careful what you what comes out of your mouth next time. And he answered him, I was born and raised. A tzaddik is nostalgic, a yid is nifta, and a goy pagus. Stop with your modern shtick. So so the dissonance between those two type of mentalities didn't didn't allow for that type of structure. So they were antagonistic to it to a big degree. Now, so, so they were part of the, they weren't, they, they were status quo just because they didn't want to join anything. There were Jews who didn't like the power that was wielded by the Orthodox. They, they were okay with a lot of things, they just didn't want somebody else to, to rule over them. They felt they're going to push their own kids, and whatever it is, sort of political reasons. And there were some people that had a bit of a milder, you know, they wanted a bit more of a modern Yiddishkeit, something like modern Orthodox, and they didn't want that. So, so those were groups of people that did not align with the Orthodox. So you had the mass of the Hasidim, who had plenty of fights with themselves. We'll speak a little bit about the, the unique Hasidus in Hungary, Hasidus in Hungary. You had the neologues who ranged from being extreme reformed to being mostly conservative. And the Orthodox, which was something 
like Germanized Samsofa. And we'll speak more when we get to Samsofa, but I want to try to and give a sense of that. It was not defined. The Samsofa's legacy was people should be very from. They had a positive view of people who knew other things also. In other words, the Samsofa had given Haskamis on books of Asfarim of Diktuk. Somebody translated science books into, into Hebrew. As long as you were very from and preferably an autodidact, they were, they were very respectful. It, it was considered a mark of honor that you knew other things also. They did not want it to be taught in schools. First of all, they were very wary of restructuring a school. Secondly, they did not want teachers who, were, who really were bad influences to influence the kids. They, they, were, they were very right about that. But the, the, they you're saying is the worthless other orthodox? Yeah, with the orthodox, we, we will, they were some sofas, Talmidim and Talmidim, Talmidim. They were the ones that the official orthodox. Yes. Okay. And it's, so they had a bit, in that group itself, you had a not complete, a not complete um, a disregard for somebody who's well-rounded, as opposed to Hasidim who had no regard for that. That was one. There was a second aspect of that group. They had it in to the Hasidim for not keeping halacha perfectly well. They were annoyed with davening late. They were annoyed with some other stuff. And they were not enamored. They, they begrudgingly were willing to accommodate them. But there was tension. The Chsamso, it started with Chsamsofa. They felt we can forgive them for doing wrong, but they're doing wrong. The Hasidim didn't take kindly to that description. And that's why there was a tension there also. Within the Orthodox group, something fascinating happened. Chsamsofa passed away in 1839. There was a vacuum of leadership. And in 1850, somebody named Rabbi Hildesheimer became the head of the Orthodox group. Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer was probably closer to YU today than, than, to, than to Yeshiva Yeshivas. He was a huge Shamat Chacham. He was a very Hasha person. He was extremely learned. And he would go on to head the rabbinical seminary in Berlin, which, which is fascinating. So here you have the head of the Orthodox in Hungary, who would later become the head of a, 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 a yeshiva university in Berlin. And he was, he was a person who felt we need to modernize. He was very firm, very stark, but we need to really modernize it. And for about 10 years, he was sort of the recognized head. People did not, um, people, you know, people respected him, but they did not like his leadership. A fascinating, I, I want to tell a little anecdote about Israel Hildesheimer. He, he was a Budapest, and a, um, a, uh, a, a Rav from one of the Kanoa towns, from the t- towns that was big Kanoi, came to, to Budapest for an eye operation. And he helped him a lot. He was very... So he said, Rav Hildesheimer, so this Rav spoke to the learning and was very impressed with him. He said, Hildesheimer, you're such a Talmud Chacham, but I must tell you that many Rabbanim sit and wonder how somebody as Chacham as Hildesheimer wastes his time studying philosophy and other stuff. How is he mevatel Torah? So he says, Chas says, I'm not mevatel any Torah, but the time of the day 
that, that you're allowed to spend wondering why Rabbi Hildesheim is wasting his time, that's when I study philosophy. <laughs> so, so, so that's the type of, of time that, that, I, that, that I spend on. He, he was very, very, you know, he, he gave it back. The rabbinical seminary in Berlin was what? was an Orthodox seminary. In, Ber in Berlin, it was the most from seminary. In Germany, it was the firmest. In, 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 in Hungary, it's, it's, implausible, it's impossible to imagine it existing as being Orthodox. It was a, it was a, it was a yeshiva with a, a lecture in philosophy and other things. Very from, it was, it was kind of a very from version of university, but that's what it was. It was a seminary. Was there, what? No, but, but there was a lot of Rav Shamsaparash was also um, Hungarian. There, there was an overlap because of Austria-Hungary. It, it was sort of an overlap. In 1860, a more canonistic group, people more to the right of the Sophers, took over the Orthodoxy and became extremely dominant. There are two people I want to mention, three people. There was somebody named Rav Chaim Sofer, who was not related to some sofa, a fiery kanoi. He was the rub in Munkach and got into fights with the Munkach Rebbe about his not keeping halacha the way he saw fit. And he was a firebrand, no compromise. And there was somebody called Rebbe Akiva Yosef Schlesinger and Hill Kalmai. Hill Kalmai was a Talmud some sofa, Akiva Yosef was a Kosala, who were extreme kanoi. They tossed out the Hildesheimer took over the body and moved it to the extreme right. This has a very fascinating end to it. Rabbi Kiva Yosef Schlesinger, Schlesinger went, he, he was a big Hanoi, he said Chutzlaritz is bad. So first he wrote a sefer called Leva Ivri, a, a Kanoistic work against everything wrong with the reform, with, this, with, with Hungary and so on. He made Aliyah to Yisrael. And he was an interesting person. He pictured a country where you divide up the land with groups of people, 10% of people would be sitting and learning, everybody else would be farming, once a month, you know, every month a different group would do army service, and so on and so forth. He wore tchelis, he wanted to blow chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah Shabbos, because he held allowed to, and the Kanoim Yerushalayim destroyed him. They, they took his, his tchelis talus and they tore it to pieces. They, the, his own father-in-law, Chaim Sofer wrote back to his father-in-law and, and he told his father-in-law that you should know your son-in-law has gone off the derech. Take away every penny that he has because he's busy buying land in Israel. And, and, you know, who knows what can happen with that. So he was disowned by his own family and he died a pretty much a lonely person. It was a, it's a fascinating chapter. He was a very original person, Kiyos Shazga. Original person. He actually, <laughs> and it was a time when he had become very modern and Germanized. And then he, he sort of boomeranged back and he became one. So in that group, in, in that in, in that um, Orthodox group, they actually um, had their own factions from people who, who wanted tactically to do to, to change things, to people who believed some modernizations of the order, to people who later became Kanoim and said all of it is bad. So with, with the war, with 1940, with, with the war, basically it all ended. Now, of the groups, as time went on... Which war? What? Yeah, so, so as time went on, the following things happened. This is Ellie mentioned yesterday, which is also very interesting. 
the Hasidim became stronger and stronger. Um, just they, they, they had larger families, they, the, the, the groups grew. There was infighting and so on, but, but each group became, they became bigger and larger. The Zionism became a strong force and, and, the, and the sort of, I guess, I don't know if they, the, the neolog is just a catchword, but it, it's German, it, uh, Hungary had a lot of non-religious um, sort of traditional people or people affiliated with Zionism or something, that was group. The orthodoxy froze, and and it doesn't exist. You know, the Samsofa's legacy as such basically ceased to exist as a group of people. I mean, we'll speak about his legacy in, in a bigger term, but but that group ceased to exist. They sort of most of them folded into Hasidim. They became non-denominational of sorts, and and today there is nobody in the shul over here where we davened last night. It's a holdout because they davened Hashkenaz. One of Samsova's big battles was against Adam's fire. And, and, and that's a holdout. But they were in the state. And it's interesting to try to understand why these different groups succeeded, didn't succeed, and so on. Um, you know, the question was, what would have been ideal? Which is, which is a, a, a hypothetical question. Nobody knows. Nobody can answer. And the fact that they split so strongly, and they made a very clear demarcation um, is seen as having saved whatever orthodoxy there was. Um, and the truth is that Shamshukal Hirsch also made that demarcation. It, the idea that very, there's a very clear red line of when you cease to be a Shoma Mitzvah. Um, so that piece seemed to have done well. I think, I, I mean, if I can guess, again, it's a, sort of a hazarding a guess, as why the, the Hasidim were a lot more successful, and we'll speak about Hasidus later on, it's because, A, they had charismatic leadership. When the Samsova passed away, they no longer had a person that was a leader. It became an organization, it became sort of a structure, but there wasn't a person that was drawing people like the Samsova. That's a problem. Hasidim, almost by definition, had a leadership, a strong leader, and that sort of made the Hasidus or, 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 or broken. And also, I think they had a more <coughs> positive, what are we? We are Satma, we're something. The Orthodox is defines itself what we're not. Yeah. In other words, basically, we're not theologians. We, we, there wasn't a very strong positive message. It was more about what you don't do than what you do do. Part of the picture of, and this has to do with the Sofa's legacy, was what do you do with issues that are not halakha issues, but they're more a trend. And this is what we spoke about. The changes they wanted, most of them, certainly the earlier groups, were very careful to stay within halakha because they didn't want the opposition. What do you do when it's clear that a group is trying to move in the wrong direction, but they're not doing anything wrong per se. Do you make an issue out of it or not? What happens if everybody decides to get dressed in shul with their favorite football team's uniform? Do you find an issue of it or not? Making a chup in a shul has no real issue to it. But the reason they made it was to look like a church. So, so what do you do with it? So the, the, the part of the, those, the, the orthodoxy's principles was not, once they recognized 
that all of these changes or preludes for, for, for some real fundamental change, you know, once you get everybody to look like a guy, sound like a guy, you know, act like a guy, then, then being a guy is just another step down. So the sense was stop the ball when it's beginning to titter rather than when it's when it's rolling downhill. There were moderates, like a Zola Hilton, that said, that's stupid. You're defending a fort that you don't need to defend at a heavy price, losing people that you can accommodate if the ball rolls a little bit lower, and, and for no reason. And and that was part of that still today, I would say, is very much um, the issue in the broad Orthodox community. What do you do when you recognize a trend that's maybe coming from a desire to be more like everybody else, but it will allow you to accommodate more people, it will allow you to be more pragmatic in, in what you can do in the world, or do you say not? And I, I, I think for some people this works, some people this works, but this works. But, but so, so, so the history of reform and, and Germany and in Hungary and the response to it, I think are relevant to this very day. The, the real question of um, middle ground always has a problem. It's easy to be fanatical and extreme on both extremes. It's hard to be extreme in the middle. It's hard to have that charge. We want to be middle of the roads, committed middle of the roads. It doesn't work well. It's much easier to be, you know, extreme on events. On the other hand, um, you see something like a Kanos eats itself up. You know, Rav Schlesinger was a Kanoi here and was destroyed by Kanoim there. So it's a fascinating piece of history. Um, you know, Kanoz devours itself because there's no there's no end to it. It sort of it, it, um, it, it eats itself up. What? Yes, but almost by definition, you know. Um, I guess I can conclude this. There's a version of Soloveitchik, he said once, from his father, Moshe Soloveitchik, that I think is very relevant. He said, it says, when Hashem created Adam, he, he went around and he asked, consulted the four angels. The angel of kindness said, yes, create Adam because they're kind. The angel of peace says, no way, people are going to make wars, don't create men. The angel of Tzedakah said, yes, create people, they give Tzedakah. And the angel of truth said, um, don't create men because they're very deceptive. So Hashem took the angel of truth, tossed them overboard. You know, we've heard of hacking the Supreme Court. This is unpacking the Supreme Court. And it was two to one vote. And we're around because it had two to one vote. That's a measure. Yeah, that's Chazal. Very good Chazal. So the Velt says, the Kotzka says on it, why did he throw over the angel of truth? And his answer was, because if truth is against you, no matter how many people you have on your side, you still lose. So he had to get rid of truth. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting... But Dr. Soloveitchik said from his father a, a really, really insightful part. He said, it's not true. People can be peaceful, and people can be people of truth. The two together is where it's impossible. Truth and peaceful. Yes. In other words, as much as people are willing to compromise, they can get along. As much as people are sticking to their guns, they have a hard and hard time getting along. Reaching that sweet point where truth and, and, and peace get along, that's human difficulty. So I, I guess that's part of the of the lesson of it. And we still, it would, I think everything we have today is sort of a replica of it in a, in a large form, in a different form, but it's, it's all part of it. Any questions, any points? Yeah. But 
saying, uh, what you were saying about applying it today, yeah. you know, if someone would want to say no, it's going too far. I mean, who, who is that someone? It's only... What do you mean someone would say no? You say, who is the person to say no in, in our world? It's only a Roshiva or a Balmaz. So, 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 let's, yeah. so let's, let's say something very contemporary. You have an issue like technology, modern technology, internet, smartphone, etc. So, you know, everyone, everyone admits that there are problems with it. So one solution is ban it. And um, who would ban it? How would they enforce it? Well, there, there's no lack of people to, to print up notices. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the my my my, my brother-in-law is a, a Yeki, Rev Kalbach. He told me that the, the Yekis, the the Broyakil, were very anti-Zionist. Roshan Forrest was also anti, you know, creating a state and so on. And the rabbits in Broya once walked through the waiting room, and somebody swung a Zionism. And she said, Zionism? It still exists? The rabbi has long ago forbidden it, strictly. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, the question is, so you can deal with it by, by just stopping it. You know, there, there were things, I mean, and, and the truth is, there were things that were dealt with that way in America. You know, it, it make, establishing yeshivas the way they are was going against a lot of tide. But, um, what? So exactly, TV, yeah, except that there's a very big difference. You know, TV you can do without, movies you can do without, you, you can't do without. Yeah. What's, what's an example of something where, let's say, the Abuda said no in it, and it was Miskayim? And it was? And it was Miskayim. So it, it lasted. It, it's, I don't know, there are occasionally issues, I, I don't know, and that's what, Abuda has the same problem. It's an organization, and once you have an organization, it doesn't have the clout in a community um, where you have a very strong leader or a very charismatic leader, then people follow. And, and when you have just an organization and people get together and they make decisions, TV is not a bad example. So there was no right, but TV was, it never came about because they signed an issue. It was something that was, you know, your Rebbe spoke against it. You, you, you were considered a pariah if you had a TV. So, so social pressure. Is it school? Is it in those no, in those days, when TV was still an issue, she was interested in getting kids. It wasn't like today, where, where, where you know, it's the other way around. There was a buy, it was a, a, a buyer's market in those days. Today, it's a. But uh, and the, you know, it's it's. it's uh, Why couldn't the Orthodox, this Orthodox? Make as their thing to be for learning Torah, like in like in Lita. So that's in, see that's what I'm saying. In Lita, the force that changed things was learning. It, it was the mentality of society. Learning and being very good at learning was something that spoke to the people. Okay. Hungary was a very balabatish world. You respected a big time chacham, but the joy of learning, thinking, ideas. It was very different, and that's why the Haskell... What? Does that have to do with the culture? Lithuanians were... The Lithuanian jury were intellectual. They were... What? No, the Lithuanian jury was simpler than simpler. What? They couldn't get people... It wasn't... It wasn't learning... They didn't have that mentality. The mentality was to be Erlich, to be from... It was like a German mentality. Proper, right... Those were words that spoke to them. The typical German Kehilla, the typical uh, Oberlander Kehilla, prided itself on being a, 
a, a, um, somebody who's very proper, somebody who does the right things, somebody who's responsible. Those were the things that they, they, they pride themselves. I said over last year, what, you know, my father was Lithuanian, and the type, when you wanted to speak about somebody highly, the, the terms in, in the order were, this person is, is an aristocrat, highly intelligent, and strongly religious. The, the, the order was aristocratic bearings. Was I don't know what that is, but but that was considered to be. I, I it was never used, <laughs> it, but but it, you know. And then being very smart was very important. And and you know, and in in Hungary, being stark about the Yiddishkeit was important. You know, keeping things stark and doing things responsibly and it, it, a different mentality. Um, the way the way that by Hasidim. Being very fiery and fakistic was was it, was was it the, the, that that was their mentality. That was the gate of the Yiddish night. So. The word they were. They, the, so it's hard. You know, it's it, he asked about if the famous rabbanim who were neologs. There were surprises. It, it, it seems like today there's no way you could mix up. A reform rabbi, an orthodox rabbi, except for Purim, maybe. But you know, there's no way you could say he, he was in the Aguda of, of of Midwood till 19, uh, you know, till 1998, and then he took on a job in Temple Bethel. It, 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 it's not something we could think of. You have to understand that in 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 Hungary, you had rabbanim, and you'll see the pictures of them, who looked like you couldn't pick them out of a group, and one day they basically said. We've got to change everything, and you wouldn't recognize them because they came pariahs. But there was no, there were, the only even Chorin, Aaron Chorin, was a rough that the Chassam Sofa had written Askama. They, they, they were rabbanim that was still somewhere in the middle, and they could go either direction with enough pressure. It's it's something we can't relate to. It, it's unthinkable for us that somebody could 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 make that change. But but there was in Germany. In Germany, it was mostly secular kind of people who had become masculine, who then became rabbis. There was a period of sort of casting off everything and then and then becoming whatever it is. In Hungary, you, you had people that just at the at the at this rabbinic conference he spoke about, where the Orthodox formed. One of the heads of the conference said he insisted they bring the rabbi of Pest in, Rabbi Schwab. Never looked at each other. Why is being Rabbi Schwab? But he insisted. He's not. He's not willing to stay unless Rabbi Schwab comes. Rabbi Schwab came, and he said, "Yes, we need to have secular schools for our kids. We need to this and that. Like everything they were against." And they basically just walked out. And it, 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 it was hard to understand. And that's that's why it was. It's, uh, I could have didn't. Aguda didn't come into being until the word Aguda did not come into being until 1900s, early 1900s. They modeled themselves. There were two or three models similar to them in different in in different communities. They they were they didn't they they lived apart from all of that politics. Hungary had its own life. They didn't need Russian Polish politics. So there, there was a handful of Hungarians. There were not many Hungarians. There wasn't. What? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Also, they, I mean, they felt that they had succeeded. 
they felt that the Polish jury and Lithuanian jury had gone down the drain. They, they were not religious, the vast majority. We, we're holding our own and, you know. So you're saying that even with the BLO, Hungarian Jews have a higher religious level than the majority of Poland? Yes, but not, not necessarily because they were better. I mean, I guess they, it just, it didn't interest them. The Polish Jew, my uncles, my mother's brothers were diehard communists, Buddhists. But, you know, as a young kid, I was scared of them. When I got older, I would talk to them and I realized they had a story. They were bitter and angry. It came about because life was rough. They had a lot of anger towards the higher classes and Rabbanim were lumped with those classes. You have to understand something, in these communities, this is another, there was a sore point. The leaders of the community were the very wealthy, like all third world countries. It wasn't a middle class. So you had the people, 90% of the people wanted taking in and 5% wanted giving in. And they wanted to have 95% of the vote and you at their mercy. So when the more religious people were in seats of power, the other people felt disenfranchised. They don't care about us. They don't care that we're walking around barefoot and hungry. Yeah, they have big stomachs with the big garden around it. All of that talk, all of the stuff in our scholar books is anger and hatred. And then when these powerful people became leaders of communities like in Hungary, they tossed out their abundance they didn't like that made their life miserable and brought in abundance that made life more comfortable. The concentration of power because they were dependent on, you know, it's still like that in a more modern community. Let's say the school is supported 40, 50% by parents and tuitions and local people, people giving smaller donations have enough to support some infrastructure. In a Hasidic community, there's five wealthy people that hold out the most and everybody else goes for free. So you have an extraordinary concentration of wealth and power and bitterness. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes not, you know, but you get that. So they were, in Lithuania and in Russia, people were intellectual and they got into, so it's because of who they were that they were so anti-religious. Hungary never had those elements. Life was better. It was more comfortable. It wasn't, they weren't wealthy, but they were much more calm life than the Polish and the Russian for sure and Lithuanians. So, and they were not that intellectual and they were not into social justice. It was different. It was a different world. Had he what? Had he 